I believe in God, but I have no reason to follow. It's a song that uh, uh, I like. It's a song that I listen to, but it's the first lyric to this song, and it's written by a guy who's about my age. I don't know when he wrote it, uh, but he, he grew up Jewish, and now he's wrestling with secular humanism, and that's where he's like the tension, how he talks, and even the, the whole album he's written is written around this kind of struggle and his thoughts and, and what's going on here. And, and when I think about that, I think we have ample reasons to follow. Ample reasons, because he, he, meaning God, doesn't exist, just exist to believe in, right? He doesn't just exist to believe in, he loves and is lovable. So not that I just believe that you exist, but I, I don't have anything for, no, no, I know that, I sense that, I've experienced that you love me and that you're lovable, so I'm going to love you. That's the phrase this morning. If I would rewrite that song for me, I would say, I'm loved by the Father, so I will follow. I will imitate him. I will walk in love. And that's Ephesians 5.1. So if you've got a Bible, Grab it with me. I want to look at this as we typically do. We just pick up books of the Bible. That's why we, we created this resource. If you haven't got it since we started this series uh, in August, grab one. If maybe you're new, grab one. They're in, in that tiny welcome center and the real one. Uh, grab one. But Ephesians 5, I want you to look at this with me. Verse 1, therefore. So again, he says, therefore. That's how we start off with chapter 4. So he keeps building. On what he's been saying, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. We are dearly Loved. There's not been a chapter, there's not been a large section of this letter that he has not conveyed, communicated, relayed the truth that we are loved. And he says it, says it here again to connect it back to chapter one. You're loved by the father who's adopted you into his family. Loved, not only by the Father, but he says Christ there. He says, also loved by Christ. I mean, you're also loved by the Son. What does that look like? He gave himself for us as our substitute. He loved us to the point of the cross. And his loving sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to the Father. By his stripes, we're healed. By his wounds, we're forgiven. So we're dearly loved children by the Father. And we're also dearly loved brothers and sisters by our big brother, King Jesus, who went before us and in love for his let's say, younger brothers and sisters led the way and in our place died for us, 1 John 4, that's how he loves you. That's how you know he loves you. 
We're dearly loved. But, but I know this, this chapter breaks this up, but I don't want you to disconnect. I know when, when chapters 5 comes in, chapter 6, that sometimes we just separate them from the rest. But you've got to go back to what, is, what does this look like? He also says, you're forgiven. We're forgiven, right? In, in calling us to forgive last week, it is rooted in that you have been forgiven in Christ. And so how do you know that you're loved? Jesus on the cross, how do you know that you're loved? You've been forgiven by the Father because of the work of the Son. The subtle, destructive lie, maybe one of the greatest that we believe and can believe, is that the Father isn't trustworthy when He says He loves us. It's the same thing all the way back to the garden. Did God really say? And Paul does not ever want you to live a life, to follow the rules, whatever he's about to say, disconnected from hearing and following and loving the Father's voice. Knowing that this is him speaking to me. This is his talking to me. This is what I want to hear. This is what I want to follow. This is what I want to imitate. And so he's, Paul, rooting us again in God loves you. You're dearly loved children. This is your identity. This is who you are. So walk in love. So imitate the Father. The old adage, like Father, like sons, right? That's what it is. And some of this stuff, right, is a lot more caught than taught. We get that. Even our own kids, even how we see people grow up, the things that we catch. When you're around your dad a lot, you usually start becoming like your dad. Yesterday, we got to get outside, right? Finally, there's some sun, and we can rollerblade in the street. And so we're rollerblading the street. We're hanging out, all my kids and a neighbor kid, and we're playing around, and it's just me and them forward. And, uh, and they're rollerblading on the street, and I'm watching them, and I'm talking to people as they come by or whatever, but we got to go home. And so we're going home, and someone drives by and says, have you seen these dogs? I'm like, no, we haven't seen any dogs. And so they, okay, uh, and they keep driving. Well, we keep walking back home, and we see there's the dogs. And so I, I turn around, and I'm yelling at them. I'm waving my hand, so hopefully they look in their rearview mirror and see. And so they do a UE, and they come back, and then I'm slowly just getting their attention, and the other neighbor is now like watching those dogs up ahead of me. And so I'm saying, hey, hey, you know, go, go up there. Go up there. I said, keep coming, come, come there up here. And so they get past me and I'm passing them off to the other neighbor. 15 yards away from me, right? Clear sight. And one of my sons, who's between us, feels the need to be like, drive to him. And I was like, what? I was like, what just happened? And, and I just had to come over to my son and said, hey, man, you don't have to tell adults what to do, buddy. Like, what? what? I, was so, I was so shocked. I was so taken to guess. I'm like, what just happened? And I was like, oh, he's like me. Like, he's trying to help, right? That's all he's trying to do. He's like, hey, dad tries to help people. He's pointing to people, you know, when there's a need and there's 
dogs in our neighborhood. Like we try to help when our dog's in the neighborhood, other people try to help us. Uh, but but yeah, that's what he's doing, right? But just how I heard, I was like, what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you yelling at adults you don't know, man? Let's take it back. Like father, like sons. I love to yell at adults that I don't know as well. It's a big <laughs> family pastime, okay? Just. <laughs> but like father, like sons. The, the not one-off, but the continuous display of love for one another is the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. The continuous display of love for one another. And one, again, to connect this, most, one of the most tangible ways of expressing, displaying this love is by showing genuine forgiveness each and every time someone offends. When we think about love and action, when we think about fallenness, of what it looks like to walk in love, jump back to verse 32 quickly. Be tender, tender-hearted, not hard-hearted towards the Lord or towards one another. Kind and compassionate, not bitter and resentful. Loving. Loving. Now, I know you, you know me. Uh, it's a shorthand, I guess, to use some relational capital that I have with you. But let's just be honest. Forgiveness is hard. For dif- forgiveness is difficult. Forgiveness often seems like it's not worth it. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. It's absorbing the pain that someone has done against you and not uh, uh, holding it against them, not treating them or throwing it in their face every time as something else comes back up. It's difficult. But then I just know you generationally, and I know where some of us are, and I know how some of us grew up. And, and so with all that saying, let me read this quote from Tim Keller. He says about your parents, if you cannot forgive your parents for the things they've done, it will distort your relationship with authority figures. If you have your own children, you may overcompensate and do either more than or the opposite of what your parents did to you. You might end up parenting your children not according to their needs, but according to yours. That I know some of the stories in this room. I know some of the most terrible things that have happened to you in your life. And still, I can tell you frankly and joyfully that forgiveness is worth it. Forgiveness is a gift from God to you, but then it's such a sweet gift from God to you when you extend it to others. And I know there's a lot of nuance there. I know there's talking about reconciliation and long-term stuff. I know. I know. But don't use some of those nuances as objections or ways to justify your lack of forgiveness. If, if that's not really there, if, like, if you're just going to use it as an excuse 
what if in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus listed excuses instead of communing with the Father? What if rather than submitting to the hard, difficult path in front of him, set by the Father, so they don't deserve it, they're not worth it, they're repeat offenders, they're half-hearted repenters, They'll turn a little bit. They'll say things with their mouth, but their heart's still cold. But rather, he gave himself as a sacrificial, fragrant offering to the Father so that we might be forgiven. Think about this. Romans 5, 5 says that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That means many things. We've said many things about it, but it also means this. That means the Spirit pouring the Father's love into your heart is giving you the capacity to love far beyond what we might think we're capable of showing. Do you know at those times when which way to go? When your love tank is on empty? Let me think of a better word than love tank. Do you, uh, do you know when it's like you're running on fumes in love for others? That's such a better way to say it. Instead of a 90s dating show. Love tank. Uh, do you know what I'm saying, though? When you're running on fumes and you're like, I can't keep bearing with this person. I can't keep enduring with this person what I'm saying and what Ephesians 3 is saying because he says hey, he'll give you more. He can, he can do more than you can even ask or imagine. That he's given you the capacity to love people more than you even know. More than you can even probably fathom. And we've seen it in our family. We've seen those moments, the, the moments where people have been in some of the darkest parts of their life and they seem to be responding with peace and love why because god has so loved them and given the capacity to love even in the face of evil even in the face of betrayal even in the face of relationships being wrecked or destroyed why because the father loves them because the father has made them, treated us, operated, interacted with, related to us, and made us dearly loved children. So, two verses. He's calling us to imitate our loving Father and walk in love. Okay? But... In the theme of the past three weeks, and in this text, usually when he's going to call us to walk in something, he's going to call us to walk away from something. So he's saying, walk in love, but where we're going is, walk away from lust. Look at it, verse 3. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. 
Obscene and foolish talking or crude, coarse joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognizes this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So because we're dearly loved children, and he's about to say we're children of the light in verse 8, such conduct is utterly inconsistent with our new identity in Christ. So it shouldn't even be heard of among us. Meaning, known and loved humans don't need lust. Loved and known humans don't need lust. Lust is never satisfies. It's always craving on false substitutes that last for minutes. But love is content and grateful. Now, these two words, I think we, the, the, the CSV translation helps with verse 4 about obscene and foolish talking, crude joking. That's, that helps us understand what he's speaking of. But in sex, sexual immorality, that means just, it's a, broad, it's a broad term covering any kind of sexual sin. And then greed, greed is the insatiable desire for more and more and more. Lustful, the greedy, are those with a strong desire to acquire for themselves more and more money and possessions. Why? Because they love, trust, and obey wealth rather than God. So let's talk about that greed for a minute. So walk away from greed, that this shouldn't be, this, this doesn't match up with our identity, so we shouldn't walk this, or, or to go back to chapter 4, we shouldn't put this on, right? Because Jesus commands us in Luke 12 to delight in God and store up our treasure in heaven. Paul echoes it when he says in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is of great gain. Great gain, meaning wealth. What's great wealth? Not worshiping wealth. What's great wealth is godliness with great uh, godliness with contentment. He goes on in, in to say that the that greed kills, and the rich should not set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So you're, our conduct shouldn't line up with this because it's empty. The, the God of money is empty. It will not satisfy. The call for us is to find our satisfaction in God alone to be content in him, to be joyful in him, to delight in him. So instead of worshiping money, instead of uh, 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 bowing to money, we're to make money and thank God for money and use money for the right purposes while worshiping God, not money. <laughs> there's, there's a story of, of Tim Keller talking about a sermon series with his wife and he was going through vices 
and he went through 11, and one of them was greed, and his wife told him while he was preparing, that because they, they told everyone what they were going to cover, and he said, she said, greed will be the most least attended sermon of this series. And she was right. And then he said, afterwards, it was silent. You know, no comments about, thank you for this, this was helpful, it was silent afterwards. And he said, I think I know why. It's because it's such the culture that we breathe, greed, we don't even know that it's us. We're always thinking about someone else. I mean, that person's greedy. No, no. Stop trying to stiff arm this or point this attention to someone else, but to us. More, more, more. Need, 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 need. Always when we already have been known and loved. So why pick up this practice? Why pick up this conduct from people that don't know Jesus and live this way when we already have what our hearts so desire, so need? Or as the early African church father put it, Augustine, our restless hearts are restless until they find our rest in God. And then sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality was a huge problem in the early church, particularly among the Gentiles. There's adulterous relationships. There's men sleeping with their slave girls. There's First Corinthians. There's a man sleeping with his stepmom. There's incest. There's prostitution. There's quote-unquote sacred sexual encounters in the local temples and homosexuality, all part of everyday life in that culture, in the early church, not the current one. Just kidding. It does sound familiar, right? It sounds familiar, which is terribly sad, but it gives us hope that the church was born, grew, and flourished in a sexually insane world. We're there again. Now at this time, there's no pervasive social standard with regard to sexual relations. Uh, Jews had been long appalled at the Gentile behavior in this regard and considered them impure. The Mishnah, which is uh, extra biblical writing on the Old Testament, even prohibits a Jewish woman from being left alone with a Gentile because he cannot be trusted sexually. Thousands of years ago. The church was born, grew, grew and flourished in a sexually insane world because the church, one of her faces one of her perspectives one of her obligations is to be a hospital for the wounded is to be a hospital for us thinking very particularly us in this day and age a, a hospital for the wounded of the sexual revolution like florence nightingale we're here to nurse and love those who have been chewed up by the grinding gears of sexual immorality 
God's sexual ethic is love, not lust. And that's for our good. When Scripture condemns particular types of sexual sin and lustful thoughts, it's for our good. Now, will people like us and us will try to work around this teeping, teaching of Scripture, but anchor it with this. Paul says there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality in a believer's life. You were darkness, now you're light, so become what you are. Live in the light. Walk in the light. Walk in freedom. Don't get entangled. Don't get ensnared. Don't be enslaved to sexual immorality. You are light. Your children are light. Your dearly loved children become what you are. Live as you are. Which means we must resist the temptation to rename sin, to redefine it, to minimize it. What are some popular examples? It's for mature audiences. These euphemisms. You know, when euphemism, we take the edge off. When someone's died, we say someone's passed. What a euphemism it is to call establishment a gentleman's club. What? Gentlemen meant, at the least, chivalrous, caring, compassionate, thoughtful. Any man that walks in that establishment, that's not a gentleman. Does it make sense? So we must not redefine sin. We can't adopt what we hear so often. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it is good. That is foolishness. It, it's really immaturity, honestly. It's the, the lack of wisdom to discern between a good desire and a bad desire. Not every desire that you have needs to be, not every desire you have is good. We must not merely manage the sin. Colossians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 calls us to, tells us to kill sin and flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Not manage it. Not deal with it. Not cope with it. Not play with it a little bit at times. Take it out of a box on the weekends and just play with it a little bit and then put it back and it won't affect you know, your day, your organization, your productivity. It won't mess with your... No, no, no. He says run. Flee. Get out of there. Now, to be clear, the Bible is not anti-sex. It's pro-intimacy within covenant marriage. So sex is not gross, something to be stayed away from, but it's also not a God to worship. It's a gift from God, a powerful gift from God to enjoy within his wise 
path. But it's so powerful when it's wielded on our own terms rather than his. It's destructive. That's how powerful it is. It's destructive. Think of a powerful river that, that fuels and, and, and is the fertile place for land to grow, for trees and everything. Happens. What happens, though, when a, water, when a river floods? When that water gets outside of the banks, it destroys. So it's a good, wonderful, beautiful thing that brings life when it's within the banks, but when it overflows... It destroys. The same thing with sex. It is a powerful, wonderful tool within the banks of the wisdom of God. When it flows out of that, it will destroy. It will stab. It will take. It will tear. We are a hospital. So I want you to hear this if this is you, if this is something you're like, ah, or maybe you're mad that I'm even talking about it. I want you to hear this with my tone. We are a hospital. So why I'm intense is not because I'm mad. Why I'm intense is because we're in the ER and something's got to change. We got to do something about this. There's, there's urgency here. There's seriousness here. We're in triage. So we, we've got to be known not as a people that are so gr- aggressively pointing at the world and saying, how could you do this? But be a people that say, hey, we're broken and we need help and we need Jesus to restore and mend what we've broken over and over and over again. So we've got to be committed to restoring and reconciling and forgiving to restore those who fall into deep sexual sin. But the truth is we cannot heal, have healing apart from Repentance. And that's where Paul's been leading us this whole time. Can you imagine just some of the people in Ephesus? Can you imagine where they came from? Can you imagine what they were doing before they heard about the good news of Jesus? I can imagine because I know us. And I know where some of us have been. And I know what we've done. And it will take time to work through past wounds. It'll take time to rebuild trust. It'll take time to grow and put this stuff to death but it won't ever happen if you don't start fleeing now. You're not going to drift into walking in love. By the logic alone, you need to be around your father so that you become more like your father. 
You're not going to drift into being a loving, giving, helpful, blessing, others-focused, joyful person. If you're not around the one who loves you so much, that he gave his only son to pay for the wretched mess of our sexual lives. So we can't have healing apart from repentance. We've got to repent. We've got to acknowledge a sin, believing that we need to change, experiencing the grace of Jesus, and then working by his grace to kill this sin, to change our lives. So let's dig into this a bit more. What's going on inside of you? What's going on with lust? Lust is a vicious cycle. It never has what it wants because it never has enough. Lust steals joy by creating an endless state of discontentment in the constant search for the one next thing that you don't have yet. Lust is never happy because lust is never full. Paul inserts, rather than lust, give thanks. Give thanks. Now, you could just go to like, he's just talking about obscene, crude, joking. No, it, it's give thanks in connection to this whole passage. Give thanks. What, what, what's happening there? It may not seem logical. Well, the logic of lust requires you to be discontent with what you have and pay attention to all the things you don't have. The logic of thankfulness requires you to focus on what you already have received and to be overcome with thanks. Do you hear me? That's why it says give thanks in the midst of this because gratitude is the opposite of greed. Think about that. The temptation to lust is wrapped up in a failure to give thanks. Keith Lambert, applying this principle specifically to porn. It can be applied to sexual immorality. This is what he says. If you struggle with porn, one of your greatest needs is to grow in the grace of gratitude. Just because you may have never thought about it doesn't mean it isn't true. Porn is only consumed by thankless people. The desire for porn is a desire to escape from what the Lord has given you into a fake universe full of things you do not have and will never have. Porn is the trading of gratitude for greed. Porn trades joy. Let me, let me just open it up a little bit because when we get so narrow, some of us say, it's not me, right? Sexual immorality trades joy in the reality God has graced you with for greed in the counterfeit world he has not. So when he says flee sexual immorality, when he says kill sin, how can you kill sin? Give thanks. Give thanks. That's how. Count your many blessings one by one. Sing that tune with your kids and list it out. Give thanks. A grateful heart loves. A discontent heart lust. 
on Friday with the men speaking of humility, we said that true humility leads to joy. So let me come at this another angle. What is happening inside of you? What's going on this lust, this sexual morality, this crude joking, this foolish talk, this greed? What's going on? Again, Heath Lambert says this. It's a long quote, but stick with me. Men look at pornography out of an arrogant desire to see women in a way that God does not allow. They show arrogant defiance to God's commands, rejecting the delight of sexual intimacy in marriage and deciding for themselves what they believe is better, looking at naked women in porn. They show arrogant disregard for God's call to selfless marital love. They show arrogant derision for the female actresses whom they should be seeking to respect as women who need to hear the good news of Jesus. They show arrogant disdain for their own children by hiding their sin and inviting the enemy into their home and their marriage. They show arrogant disrespect toward all those who would be scandalized if their sin were known. The root problem is not neediness, it's arrogance. So how can you kill your sin? Give thanks and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. An arrogant heart is a lustful heart. A humble heart is a grateful, joyful heart. Not looking out to all my interests, to all my sexual desires, but looking to Jesus. Some of you guys still wrestle with this because you think after you become a Christian that it's on you to do this, but but that misses God's grace, that God's grace not only forgives you for what you've done, but God's grace transforms you and changes you and breaks our bondage to sin. So, so we should rightly celebrate God's forgiving grace, but we also need his transforming grace to become like Jesus, to walk in love, to imitate our Father, the gospel. So hear me. Before I get into a few specifics, the grace of the gospel must empower and undergird all our strategies or we won't see lasting change, right? It's got to undergird it. You have to run to God's grace in the midst of your fight against whatever sin, but that should also fuel you for strategies, for wisdom, and what do I need to do to not give any opportunity for this or not to put myself in this temptation or, or not to repeat this? Why? This is a war for our souls. Most, most of the wreckage we have experienced as a family here, as a church family, as a family, is because of sexual immorality. Do you hear me? We've got to take this seriously. Flee, run, kill it. This is a war for your soul, for your marriage, for your family, for your witness. So that, that, that's why when Jesus says take radical measures, this is exactly what he's talking about. 
when he gives that imagery of like, if your hand offends, you need to cut it off. It's radical measures, right? Like something needs to happen significantly. You, you can't keep throwing water balloons. You're in a fight. So that, if it's pornography, it's sexual immorality, whatever it may be, it, it means wisely removing any means to view that. That means maybe removing any devices. That means installing software. That means uh, uh, maybe taking the keys away from you. Do you hear me? Radical measures. Why? Because it's coming after you to kill you, your marriage, your life, your dating relationship, your relationship with your kids, only to repeat itself in your kids in 20 years when they do the same thing like you. Instead of imitating the father, they imitate you and sexually sin again. This is serious. Whatever it means to turn from, to take this serious and go after. Yes, use it. There's wise, helpful things in this fight. But I'll tell you, implement them, but, but don't put your hope in them. It's a fine line. Your hope must be in the grace of Jesus, not your ability to change. Not even in your willpower. Your confidence must be in he loves me and in his love he's continuing to work in me, pursue me, and form me more into the image of the Son. It will make life more difficult taking radical measures. It will. Not having a phone, not having open access the way you thought you should have open access to anything because you're an adult. It will make life more difficult in some ways, but the sacrifice is better than drinking the poison of sexual immorality. Lambert, one more time, he says, employing radical measures is the path to life, while indulging sin is the path to hell. God does not forbid sexual morality because he wants you to be miserable. God forbids it because sexual morality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and hell. So there are many strategies to kill sexual morality, greed, and obscene talk. There's very specific things. I'm talking big picture, though. Give thanks and humble yourself. But really, that's really just the main thing. And what's the main thing? The biggest strategy that we have to fight sin is to delight in God above all else. That's what it is. That's why we give thanks, right? So that we're looking to him, that we're honoring. Why do we humble ourselves? Because we're looking to him and we're honoring him. We're delighting in him that he becomes our treasure above anything else in this world. Delight in your loving father. And then he finishes with this little warning. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So, let me clarify something. Because these are the things that get misapplied and misused sometimes. He's already said that believers 
will have an inheritance with God because they've been sealed by the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 18, he prayed that they be increasingly aware of their identity as heirs. So this warning right here does not function as a warning that they should be aware of their actions lest they forfeit their inheritance. That's not what he's saying. It actually has the exact opposite force. Paul wants them, us too, to be assured that they are heirs of the eternal kingdom. Because of that, they should now live like kingdom people and serve their loving and merciful God with a heart full of gratitude. What he's saying is it just doesn't match up. So why live like that? Why be partners with? Why join in? Why adopt this life? Why adopt these practices? Why, why really commit yourself to a sexually insane world? You no, know, you have an inheritance. You are light. You're dearly loved children. Kent Hughes adds that, do Christians fall into these sins? Of course. Of course. But true Christians will not persist in them for persistence in sensuality is a graceless state. Paul told the Corinthians, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And when he says to not be fooled, deceived with empty arguments. It's those justifications that we hear or that we use to give submission to and a yes to our sexual sin. What are those things? The things I hear that I've heard from culture or people to justify, it's like there's no God. Just that empty argument to justify there's no God so there's no standard so there's nothing that really matters God doesn't care our bodies he doesn't exist so we do as we please consent is the only standard for sexual morality now that's an empty argument don't be seized by that what a terrible standard that's it Sex isn't that big of a deal. Don't be deceived. It's an empty argument. It is a big deal. I told you, it is a powerful weapon. And how you wield it will be to the flourishing of your marriage or to the destruction of it. Don't be deceived. Don't give way. Stand your ground because God's sexual ethic is love, not lust. Or to say it differently, because you're dearly loved, imitate your loving father. Walk in love and walk away from lust. Or instead of, I believe in God, but I have no reason to follow. I am loved by the father, so I will follow him. I will imitate him. I will walk in love. Father, would you make us more and more like you? lovely and loving, pouring out, serving,
giving. With joy and freedom. Father, please. I pray that by your grace, roots of sexual sin will be dug up, torn up, and thrown out right now. That new habits would start today. That affection would be diverted from trash, false substitutes, and be poured into spouses. I pray that you work in us. I trust that you will because you promised to do it. In Christ's name, amen.